Thank you, choir. Such a good song. If you have your Bible, it's going to be turning to Matthew chapter 1, where we will look today at the glorious impossible, what the choir just sang about, that God himself would condescend to become a human, to live in our place, to die in our place, and to rise again that we might have life. I want to look this morning at the story of the birth of Jesus Christ, who is the son of David, the son of Abraham, the son of Joseph and Mary, and why, the best that I can over the next few minutes, help us to see why the Bible comes together, why it culminates, why, why, why it, and how it climaxes in this story of Jesus Christ's birth. We'll come to a few of those titles in a moment, but we know that Jesus is the son of Joseph and Mary. And when we meet Joseph and Mary, they are betrothed. Now, we tend to, we tend to refer to that as engagement in our modern terms, but they are not the same. When we meet a couple who is engaged, they have made their intention to get married known They have sealed it oftentimes with the giving of a ring, but there's nothing legal about an engagement. If you break an engagement, there's no legal process to go through. But in the time of Joseph and Mary, a betrothal was as legally binding as a marriage. And so while they are not living together, while they have not consummated their marriage, they are legally bound as husband and wife to be. And so that's where we meet Joseph and Mary. They are betrothed. And in this moment, in this period of time, it comes to be known to Joseph that Mary is with child. Now we know from reading the Bible, reading the Scripture, that Mary's child is from the Holy Spirit, but Joseph doesn't know that initially. And so Joseph resolves to divorce Mary quietly. And there really is something Tender, and there's something heroic about Joseph in the story. We often miss Joseph because Joseph was an upright man. He wanted to do what was right. He wanted a wholesome wife, but he also did not want to publicly shame Mary. And so while he could have, while it was his legal right to make a big public to-do and to ruin Mary, he had resolved in his spirit that he wasn't going to do that. The Bible tells us he was going to divorce her quietly. But you see, even in his intention to be not harmful to Mary, he does something you and I often do. Instead of being faced with the problem and going to, that, going to God and asking God, what should I do about this? He decides on his own. Here's the best path forward. But thankfully, God intervenes and reveals to Joseph that the child that Mary bears is from the Holy Spirit. And so God intervenes in that specific situation to preserve the covenant promise that he made to Adam and Eve, that he sustained through all the stories that we've looked at, and now rests on a betrothed woman who has been found with child. So if you've got your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 1, I'll invite you to stand if you are able. Matthew chapter 1, and I'll begin reading in verse 18. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. 
When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from his sleep, he did all that the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this word. Thank you for the story of your birth. Help us to see, O oh God, glorious things in this story. Help us to see the fullness of the Bible in this story. Holy Spirit, come now and breathe life into us through this word. We pray in your name. Amen. You may be seated. So you see on your notes, the main idea this morning that I want us to see is that the advent of Jesus Christ declares the fulfillment of God's covenant promises to save His people. That the advent or the appearing of Jesus Christ declares with authority the fulfillment of God's covenant promises to save His people. Now I want to point out two main ways in which we see this in the birth narratives of Jesus Christ. In the four Gospels, Matthew and Luke are the only ones who record the birth narratives. And so I want to hit both of those this morning. And the first one I want to hit is Matthew chapter 1. And you have your Bibles open there. If you look on your notes, you'll see the names of Jesus declare both His identity and the work that He came to do. The names of Jesus... And you see, I, there's plural. There are several titles in Matthew chapter 1. His names declare His identity and His work. They tell us why He came. And so look at Matthew chapter 1 in verse 1, if you've got your Bible open. Matthew writes, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That word genealogy means origins. Matthew wants us to understand that this Jesus, whom at this point when Matthew wrote the gospel, had died and risen and ascended back into heaven, and the church was being established. And so he's writing to explain where this Jesus came from, who he is. And so he says this is the book of the origin of, of Jesus Christ. And the first title he notes there is the son of David. Now, if you will recall, if you know the story or if you don't know the story, David was installed as the king over Israel. Saul came first because the people asked for a king like all the other nations, and so God gave them a king, quote, like the other nations. God put a king that was hard on them, that did not love God, that led them to stray away. 
And God said, don't ask for things that you don't understand because you don't understand what you're asking for. And so after Saul is removed by God's hand, David is installed. And although David is a flawed man, a sinful man, he is a man after God's own heart. He is the man that God has installed to lead his people. In 2 Samuel 7, what we read is that God makes a promise to David and says, David, I will establish your throne forever. I will put my son on your throne and he will reign over the people of God forever with justice and equity and he will bring peace. Well, David died, so it wasn't David. And then David's son Solomon ascends to the throne, but Solomon also sins fairly wickedly and dies and it's not Solomon. And then we are told of the lineage of Israel and Judah's kings. And uh, none of them, None of them fulfill the promise that God made to David in 2 Samuel 7 to be the eternal king that would sit on that throne and rule justly. And so, as I said last week, the Old Testament closes with this expectation of that king is somewhere. It wasn't David. It wasn't Solomon. It wasn't any of these other kings that have come and gone. The king has got to come somewhere. He's got to come from David specifically. And so the Old Testament closes with this longing of where is the king? Now chronologically, 2 Chronicles is the last book in the Old Testament. And so when Chronicles closes, the throne is empty. The people are longing And so Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, opens the New Testament with this phrase. Here's the king. This son of David that has so long been awaited for, that has so long been longed for, that we haven't found yet, here he is. And Matthew makes that declaration by saying, he is the son of David. He is the eternal king is what Matthew is saying. He is the holder of the covenant promises of God. And If you will read or look down, verses 2 through 17 are a genealogy. And it's not a comprehensive genealogy. There are people skipped over because David starts with, I mean, Matthew starts with Abraham and he goes down through Joseph. Now, the genealogy is broken down into three sections. Each section includes 14 generations. There are more than that, but what Matthew wants to establish very clearly for us is that Jesus is linked to David, the eternal king over Israel. And what is spectacular, that it gets lost in the translation, but in the original Greek text of this writing... The name, the Hebrew name David appears because of the way the 14 generations are constructed. Now that's just a free uh, nerd piece of information I happen to own. But God put it in the Bible. That if you look at the way even God inspired the construction of the language, it says David. And I just find that to be fantastic. That God cares so much about explaining who His Son is to you and I, that He would put that kind of imprint into his word. But the lineage in verses 1 through 17 serves to display Jesus' link through Joseph to the kingly line of David. You see, Joseph wasn't Jesus' biological father. He and Mary had not come together. 
He wasn't of David biologically. He was of David in an adopted sense. Joseph formally adopts Jesus after the Holy Spirit comes and says, the child that your wife bears is from the Holy Spirit. Do not be afraid to take Mary. And so Joseph then agrees with the Holy Spirit and submits himself to that. Now, mind you, sometimes we can forget how hard that might have been. He wanted a wife who was chaste. He wanted a wife who was pure. And here he finds that his betrothed is with child that's not his. And so in a dream, the Holy Spirit comes and says, Take take your wife, take her as your wife, even though she is with child. You see, sometimes God will put us into situations that don't fit our plans. Sometimes God will call us to do things that may not make sense according to our plans or our desires. God never violates himself, but sometimes he violates our plans. And so Joseph takes Mary as his wife, and he formally adopts Jesus. Now we see this in verse 25, because in this point in history, the way that a formal adoption was made complete was that the adopting father would name the child. You have been given a name. You have been given an identity. You have been given a place in our family. And we see there, Joseph gives him the name Jesus. And so Joseph formally adopts Jesus, which means that he becomes his son legally with all the inheritance that comes with David's name, which is why in verse 20, when the angel comes to Joseph, she says, Joseph, son of David. Matthew wants us to see very clearly that Jesus' attachment to Joseph ensures that the covenant link between David and Jesus is held fast. And so just as Jesus is adopted by Joseph and given all the rights and inheritance that come with the kingly line, that has gospel implications for you and I. Because without the formal adoption of Jesus Christ, we, are, we have no place in the, in, the, in the family of God. But yet, let's not think too lightly about our adoption into the family of God by grace, I mean by salvation. Because when we are adopted, we are given a name and a place and an identity and all that comes with being a child of God. And so Jesus is the son of David through adoption by Joseph. He is the eternal king that will sit on that throne that God promised to David in 2 Samuel 7. Jesus will rule over the people of God with equity and with justice. And his rule will be unlike Saul, who was life-taking. Jesus' rule will be life-giving. You ever been under someone's leadership that just zaps the life out of you? Versus someone whose leadership breathes life into you. You are invigorated. You are encouraged. You are are excited because of this person's leadership. That's the way that Jesus rules over his people. His leadership, his kingly authority is for our good. And so when he makes authoritative pronouncements, when he gives commands, his people love to do them. Because when Jesus gives us a command, it's for our life. 
And so unlike the other kings of Israel who took life from their people by being oppressive, by leading them away from God, by being sinful themselves, Jesus Christ, the eternal Son, gives life through His rule. Furthermore, He will conquer our enemies. That's part of what's bound up in this title, Son of David, the eternal King. Matthew's saying, by virtue of being the King, He will conquer everything, everyone that threatens the people of God. They don't stand a chance. There's no hope for the enemies of God to win. Because Jesus, the King, is on the throne. And in doing all of that, in ruling with equity, justice, and peace, when giving life and conquering our enemies, what we see is that Jesus causes us to flourish. He causes us to flourish. He causes us to have abundant life. His advent in that feeding trough means for you on this day that God has ensured through Jesus Christ that whatever situation you find yourself in, you can have life and have life abundantly. But sometimes we get lost in false hopes. We get lost chasing false gods. We get lost trying to make things fit the way we want them to fit. But God has said through Jesus Christ, you have the fullness of life offered to you because the eternal king is on the throne. Well, the second thing we see, going back to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, Matthew says he is the son of Abraham. He's the son of Abraham. Well, in Genesis chapter 12, and again in chapter 15, what we find is that God is making a promise to Abraham. He promises Abraham, I'm going to call you out from your own people, take all your possessions, and go to the land I'll show you. I'm going to make you more numerous even than the stars. I'm going to give you so many descendants, Abraham, you can't count them all. So Abraham goes, he takes all of his stuff, he's 75, he goes out into the wilderness, and for 25 years he waits on this promise of a child until finally at 100 years old, God gives him the promised child Isaac. And then God calls him to sacrifice Isaac. So he takes his son up on the mountain, he puts the wood on his back, they go up together, they build the altar. Abraham binds his son and puts him on the altar and is prepared to sacrifice him when God intervenes and says, don't harm the boy, I will provide the sacrifice. And so Abraham, praising God, names the place. On this mountain, God will provide. The chosen son, the son on whom all the promises of God rested, was saved, was given new life, through the intervention and salvation of God. Well, what we see when Matthew says that Jesus is the son of Abraham, what he's saying is what God, what God promised to Abraham comes to its full completion in and through Jesus Christ. He, Jesus, is the sacrificial son whom God himself provides on that mountain. You see, like Isaac, he is the one who climbed the mountain with the wood on his back. Like Isaac, he actually was slain by his father. Like Isaac, or I'm sorry, unlike Isaac, he was slain by his father. Unlike Isaac, he was the sacrifice that God provided. And yet, as Abraham was prepared to receive Isaac back from the dead, so we know, 
So we know as fact that we have received Jesus Christ back from the dead because of the work of God. And so what God promised to Abraham, I'll make you more numerous than the stars, through you all the nations will be blessed. We see that promise sustained all through the Old Testament and culminating and climaxing in the birth of Jesus Christ. And if we skip to the end of the Bible and read the last two chapters of the Bible, what we find is the completion of the wholeness of that promise. Because at the end of the Bible, it says that in heaven, there's Jesus, and he is bringing healing to the nations. So whereas at the beginning, God said, through you, Abraham, there's coming a promised son who's going to bless all the nations. At the end of the Bible, the Bible is saying, the promise has come and all the nations are blessed, just as God said. And so when Matthew says, Jesus is the son of of Abraham, he's saying that along with being the eternal king, Jesus is the eternal sacrifice that through his life, death, and resurrection brings flourishing to all the nations of the world. Well, he doesn't stop there. If you skip down to the end of chapter 18, verse 23, Matthew quoting Isaiah says that God, Jesus' name, or Jesus will be Emmanuel. That he will be God with us, which is the name, the meaning of the name, Emmanuel. And so from the very beginning of his gospel story, what Matthew wants us to see is that when that baby is born, that baby is God in the flesh. John talks about this in chapter 1 of his gospel, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Matthew wants us to see from the get-go that God is not only with us spiritually, he's with us quite literally, physically, that he is with us as his people. And what's also particular about this gospel story is the way Matthew opens it, Jesus Christ is Emmanuel, is the way in which Matthew closes it. Because when he brings all of this to a close and the disciples are commissioned to go into all the world to make disciples, what does he say? Surely I'll be with you always. And so the gospel story opens that God is with us and has been since the beginning, since the promise was made. And God will forever, forever be with his people. The promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis 15, where he says, Abraham, surely I will become your shield, your very great reward is what God says. He doesn't say to Abraham, I'll give you a great reward. He doesn't say, you will have riches and abundance and all the worldly treasures that you can have. He says to Abraham, I myself will become your very great reward. We makes the promise to Moses and Israel in Exodus chapter 15 as well. He says to them the same language, I, God, will become your very great reward. You see, such a name as Emmanuel is the fulfillment of prophecies such as Jeremiah 31, where God says to Israel, even though you've been like an unfaithful wife and you have committed adultery, I won't leave you. I will come to you. I will restore you. I will put my statutes in your heart and cause you to walk in my ways. I will do all of this for you because I am Emmanuel. 
We read the same thing in Ezekiel chapter 36 where God says, I will remove your heart of stone and put within you a heart of flesh. I will cause you to know me and I'll cause you to walk in my ways. And how can he do that? Because he is God with us. God doesn't promise salvation that sits apart from him. He promises salvation that is himself. God's promise of salvation is the gift of himself in full. He will come. He will save his people. We're taken back to the Garden of Eden, where if you recall when we started this in early December, God himself comes to clothe Adam and Eve. They sin, they fall away, they realize that they're naked, and so they seek to cover themselves with fig leaves. And God, even though He knows my coming to them will terrify them to the core, it's what they need most. And so He comes to them and says, Your petty efforts will never do. I have come to clothe you. He's come to save Adam and Eve from their sins. And in the same way, God let anybody else but himself come to save his people from their sins. And so when we read the name Emmanuel, it's the first glimpse that God's promised salvation has begun. And it's marked in his name. There is something right and something comforting about saying the name Jesus. When we understand what stands behind that name, we should say it regularly. We should long to say it and long to hear it. Which leads leads us to our fourth name in Matthew's narrative, which is Jesus. Which is Jesus. He says in verse 21, the angel says, Mary will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. <clears throat> the name Jesus is the Old Testament name Joshua, which means God saves. And by giving him that name, by giving him the name Jesus, God is saying up front, this baby has come for the salvation of my people. Well, we see that the Jews were looking for a political or cultural warrior when Jesus comes on the scene. They wanted someone who was going to ride in on a horse and conquer Rome and overthrow the government so that they could have things the way that they thought they should be done. If these people would just get out of our land, if they would just get out of our way, we could get back to doing things the way they ought to be done. Because what we need salvation from is other people. We need salvation from the world. We need salvation from the bad influences. We need salvation from all the stuff that makes my life hard. And so when Jesus comes on the scene as a baby, the Jews are thinking, what's this? You see, Jesus didn't fit the model that they had in their head. And I think if we're honest, we often share this mentality today. If Jesus would just come and fix our culture, if Jesus would just come and fix politics, if Jesus would just get all these bad influences out of our lives, we'd be fine. You see, Jesus' very name explains his purposes for coming and from what he came to save his people. His name explains that. 
He didn't come to save us from the culture. He didn't come to save us from politics. He didn't come to save us from anything but our own selves. That's why Jesus came. He came to save us primarily from our selves, from our sins. You see what it says. He will save his people from not other people's sins, not culture's sins, but their sins. You see, what separates us from God is not what other people do. It's what I have done against God. And so I don't need salvation from what other people do. I need salvation from what I have done against God. And so Jesus' ministry is not primarily something for us to get behind as much as it is something for us to be confronted with and consumed by. Jesus wasn't leading some special movement. Jesus was coming to call sinners to life. He was coming to confront us in our sin and call us to repentance and life in God. And what Matthew is showing us is that Jesus will not, he will not conform his mission and ministry to the hopes and the whims of people. Jesus will not conform his ministry and his mission to what we want because he came to save us from such false hopes. We often think that Jesus' ministry is about saving and reforming those people. That is, people, not us. We're good. Tends to be what we think. But Jesus says, or the Bible says, that Jesus' name proclaims that he came to save us, brothers and sisters, from ourselves. Well, a second thing I want to hit just briefly is over in Luke, which is the text that I read just a few moments ago, that Jesus' birth was the fulfillment of God's promises to save. You see, Zechariah prays this great grand prayer about all that God has done in and through his people. And what we see is that Zechariah says that through Jesus Christ, God is visited and redeemed. That through Jesus Christ, God has raised up this powerful leader in the line of David. That what God has done through Jesus Christ is He has confirmed all that He said through the prophets. That what God has done through Jesus Christ is has fulfilled the oath given to Abraham and that it is now ours. That what God has done through Jesus is that we have been saved from our sins. And that sunrise that He talks about is the birth of Jesus Christ. So we need to ask ourselves this question, what does the great rescue mean for me? Why does it matter that God's promises are fulfilled? Well, it means that God's promise to Adam and Eve was fulfilled way back in Genesis chapter 3, that the snake crusher came. He said to to Eve, there's going to come someone through your line who's going to crush the head of that serpent. And on the cross, Jesus did that. And so when Jesus is born... Just as Tracy said to our kids here, they gave him burial ointment. And so even from the birth, his death is being proclaimed. Well, it means that God's made a way for mankind to be reconciled to him forever. It means that God has promised the needed sacrifice for sin on the Mount of Provision, which we see from Genesis 22. It means remembering that Jesus' birth marks the return to good that was abandoned in the garden. You see, Christmas is an anticipation.
expectation of the coming realities of God. Do you live like that? Does Christmas instill in you? Does it renew in you an anticipation for all that God is going to do? Not that what you hope your life turns out to be, but of all that God has said will happen in and through Jesus Christ. Well, it means that celebrating Christmas is primarily about remembering the advent of King Jesus and all that that means which is the dawning of salvation, salvation from our sin. It means abundant life. It means the truth of the Scriptures. It means the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It means the fellowship that we share in and through the Gospel. Well, it means that the great rescue has been accomplished. It means that we should be intentionally setting our minds and our hearts along with our traditions and our pocketbooks on the things of God, not on the things of the culture and the world. It means celebrating and treasuring the advent of King Jesus and not so much what has been come to be known as the Christmas holiday. It means that the way in which we live every day and the ways in which we celebrate the Christmas holiday should proclaim Christ and his gospel to our families to our friends, and to the world. And so as we move into the Christmas week, but also looking beyond, let's choose to remember what Christmas is about. Christmas is about worshiping King Jesus. It's about realizing that Jesus is the son of David and the son of Abraham and Emmanuel and Jesus and all that stands behind those glorious names and titles. It's about worshiping Him. It's about spending our time and money on what's most important. It's about loving the hurting. It's about making much of this great King. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to You now. We praise You because of Your Word. We praise You because of Your goodness. Lord, we praise You because You have come and we are able to celebrate that together. Lord, I pray that as a church family, as a church body, indwelled by the Holy Spirit, that we would celebrate with abundance, with joy, all that you have done in and through Jesus Christ. Lord, we praise you because Jesus is the eternal King. We praise you because Jesus is the promised covenant sacrifice. We praise you because Jesus is Emmanuel. and He dwells with us eternally through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we praise you, King Jesus, because you save us from our sins. May we, may we respond appropriately. I pray these things in your holy name. Amen. Let me invite you to stand as we respond through song. The Lord is deep at the front to pray with you or to encourage you, but let's stand now and sing.